Annika. Welcome to the Not My Problem podcast. Let's have some long overdue, uncomfortable conversations. Hi everyone, we're back again. Hi. Uh, today's uh, topic for this episode is sex education and as you remember in our last episode we discussed quite a bit about what to lo- what length we are willing to go to make our bodies appear socially attractive or sexually attractive and this is basically why we want to discuss sex with you today and we want to address this topic because oftentimes it's still considered a taboo and there's a lot of misinformation going around that can ultimately cause a lot of harm. Yeah, so before we carry on, um, I just want to recap what sex education actually is or looks like, at least in the UK. It is known as sex and relationship education, and it's compulsory from age 11 onwards, uh, since 2019. It involves teaching children about reproduction, sexuality and sexual health. Uh, it doesn't promote early sexual activity at all or any particular se- sexual orientation. And some parts of sex and relationship education are compulsory. These are part of the national curriculum for science, but parents can withdraw their children from all other parts of sex and relationship education if they want. So from what we have seen, sex, sex ed in the UK is a lot more comprehensive than what at least I've experienced in uh, growing up in Switzerland like a couple of decades ago now. Yeah, <laughs> same goes for me growing up in Germany. <laughs> but um, for most people, sex has been, is still seen as a, as a taboo topic, right? And it's not just um, in their close friendship circles or, or with partners, but it has also been taboo in, in society. Yeah, and there's also kind of um, different as expectation socially for men and women, but we want to have a little disclaimer before we go into this conversation. We want to make our listeners aware that the following studies and discussions do not include non-binary or gender conforming people or sometimes not even um, or able-bodied people because um, we both don't have any experience of that and we don't feel comfortable sharing information with that respect. And also, there just genuinely wasn't a lot of information, unfortunately. Yeah, we did do um, our research on this, but it was rather hard to come by um, any credible research. And uh, yes, as I said, we don't really have a lived experience and we don't understand and can't relate to some of the issues faced by people of this community. Um, Yeah, yeah. so so if you do feel uh, well-equipped to talk about this, uh, this topic for specific groups of people, please do reach out. <laughs> yes, get in touch with us, please. We'd be happy to, to have right. you on the, on the yeah. podcast. Um, Steph, do you want to get started with a couple of sexual taboos then? Yeah, so as you already hinted, um, there are differences, different expectations from men versus uh, women when it comes to like sexual behavior or yeah, just their, the general concept of, of sex. For example, the significance of uh, virginity loss. It's very, like, there is a study published in Springer's manuscript, uh, Sex Roles, that found that female adolescents who reported having sex had significant decreases in peer acceptance over time, whilst male adolescents reporting the same behavior had significant increase in peer acceptance. So it already means that at a young age, the notion of having sex, aka losing virginity 
is perceived different differently based on uh, your gender. So it's like a cool thing if you're a male, but something to be ashamed of if you are a female. Similarly with other kinds of sexual behavior, um, so traditionally men or boys are expected to be more, uh, to be sexually active, dominant, and uh, the, the initiator of um, sexual activity or more so of heterosexual activity, whereas women uh, slash girls are expected to be sexually reactive, submissive, and passive. And more, moreover, traditionally, men are granted more sexual freedom than women. So as a consequence, men and women can be treated differently for the same type of sexual behaviors. Yes, and just to give you a little bit of recap again, in our last episode in Sexism and Healthcare, we also looked at the gender brain, where these kind of studies that prove those theories or behaviorisms um, are being further and further um, just reported and misspread and it obviously leads to a lot of false information. And so for example, slut shaming is experienced by 50% of girls compared to only to 20% of boys and a lot of this comes also back from this social conditioning and idea that um, women slash girls are you know, less sexually um, active and more submissive or passive. Um, another study from 2019, published in the Personality and Social Psychology Review, found that for men, frequent sexual activity was more expected and evaluated as more a positive thing than for women. And again, this analysis focused on heterosexual double standards in which different sexual behaviors are expected of and valued for men and women differently. Mm. And this also obviously applies then in turn to the number of sexual partners someone has in, in, with respect to sexual double standards, where they have been also associated with gender differences um, in sexual risk behavior, specifically with more sexual partners for men and more reluctance to request or insist on condom use for women. Mm. And this has obviously bad, or. Oh, Big implications. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Of course. There's another double standard uh, and that's on masturbation. Uh, there are many studies that have outlined a masturbation gap between men and women, uh, with men masturbating on average uh, more often than women. So girls tend to learn swiftly and early on that masturbation is shameful, right? That's something that's kind of imposed uh, socially upon girls. And this belief carries on as uh, those girls grow up uh, into women right and so men are still like men are very much able to or more so able or should i say comfortable to talk about um, uh, masturbation um, and whereas women um, mostly feel stuck or ashamed around the topic of mas masturbation which is a shame really because women shouldn't expect to be um, comfortable having sex with a partner if they are not comfortable doing it alone, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's my point of view. Yeah, no, agreed. And it also takes a whole, a whole other level of knowing your own body in that in that way. But mm -hmm. we'll probably talk a little bit about this later on. Um, so I think we've just listed a couple of sexual taboos that's that are fairly obvious, or I think better known. But there are still other things that are missing from sex ed in general. And as far as we know, we couldn't find any evidence of that being part of sex ed in an educational setting either. And part of this is non-heterosexual sex, non-monogamous sex, or sex for differently abled people. 
And again, this is more of a food for thought conversation because neither of us has experienced these types of struggles, but we feel it's important to include it in our conversation, even if it just means raising a little bit of awareness around it. Mm -hmm. And um, there is this, there's a charity called Enhance UK, which specifically focuses on disability and sex. And um, they um, have produced a lot of um, interesting material around the topic. And one of the things that they say is widely accepted is that disability isn't seen as sexy. And I think, although I can't name any figures on this, that's a fairly well-known statement and probably many people would agree with. And um, it's fairly as obvious as open any magazine and you'll find an article about what makes an attractive partner, right? And whilst we all value different qualities such as intelligence, um, a sense of humor, specific looks or financial security, no one ever says disability. It's just not something that's seen as attractive. And also who wants their disability to be a sexual commodity on the flip side, right? Mm -hmm. The problem really is we never talk about disability and sexuality in the same sentence. And the really the result is that people often fear their disability is an active turnoff, and that's one of the biggest barrier that Enhance UK have outlined for people who have a disability. Yeah, there are actually so many barriers um, that disabled people face um, when they want to have an active sex life. For example, just self confidence, self esteem, or finding an, uh, a partner, or overcoming physical and emotional barriers. Right. And that's due to the um, lack of representation um, of disabled people in, as you said, ma magazines or just, you know, represent, representing them as attractive, sexually attractive people as well. Um, but in fact, all of those same barriers apply to anyone wanting an active sex life, right? The difference, however, for disabled people is that no one seems to want to talk about sex and disability. Um, targeted relationships and sex education for young disabled people is practically non-existent um, up to this day and support for couples coming uh, to terms with disability and uh, the impact it has on their relationship is thin on the ground um, so yeah that's something that still needs to be improved I think in the sex sexual education curriculum Yes, very much so. And if you want any further information, there is actually this great charity with men I've mentioned a couple of times now. It's called Enhance UK and you will find a lot of really good information on their website. Um, another thing we wanted to discuss, and that is, I think, over recent years, at least when I had sex ed at school, it wasn't a big deal. But over recent years, I do believe it has become a bit more of a big deal. And it's that discussion around consent. <laughs> So, and as per Not My Problem podcast tradition, here is a definition on consent for you. <laughs> so, consent is defined by section 74 of the Sexual Offences Act 2003. And I'm not going to give you the 100% specific wording here, but there are some pointers from rape crisis. And that's again, that's charity in the UK. The age of consent in England and Wales is 16. And this is the legal age at which a, a person can take part in a sexual activity. Now, Seth, do you want to go into a couple of pointers here, what that can look like? Yes. So, <clears throat> broadly, like f a few points, sexual activity without consent is sexual violence, like period. Uh, if someone says no to any type of sexual activity, they do not consent. That should be clear, but yeah. Yeah. Um, 
But now, if someone doesn't say no out loud, that doesn't automatically mean, mean yes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you don't have explicit consent until you actually have a yes. Um, if someone seems unsure or stays quiet or moves away or doesn't respond, it is not consent. Um, many people who have experienced sexual violence find that they were unable to move or speak. So this is a common reaction. Someone who's not moving is not consenting. Mm-hmm. Uh, similarly, if someone is asleep, unconscious, or too drunk or drugged, they cannot consent to sexual activity. So that would that would also fall into the um, non-consensual sex. Um, now, if someone is threatened, bullied, pressured, or manipulated into saying yes, this is also not consent. If someone is, is not sure whether you are giving your consent for for anything sexual, they should check with you first. Um, so any types of uncertainty usually means no doesn't mean consent, right? And um, if they can see, if someone can see or suspect that you're not a hundred percent comfortable or happy with what's happening between you, they should stop simply. To give you a couple of examples, what consent now actually looks right like and what it doesn't look like, um, we're gonna just again give you a few pointers because sometimes even though to us or our listeners it might be fairly clear from this broad definition from rape crises what consent looks like for some people that's clearly not still enough Mm -hmm. so consent looks like when someone enthusiastically is saying yes like yes yes (laughs) (laughs) um when you talk to your partner about what you do and don't want and listening to them in return again that's what consent looks like checking in with your partner for example is this okay Do you want to slow down or do you want to stop? All questions to ask to look for consent. And finally, respecting someone's choice if they say no, never trying to change their mind or put pressure on them because that is where you then do not respect consent. Mm -hmm. On the other hand though, like consent does not look like this. So if you start feeling that you have to agree to sex because you are worried about your partner's reaction if you say no, that's that's not consent. It means you're pressuring into doing something you don't want to. Similarly, if someone is just assuming that you want to have sex just because of your actions or because of what you're wearing, um, so, so that's also not a sign of consent at all, right? Like, for example, people would say, yeah, but, you know, she was wearing this and she was flirting with me, so of course she wanted or he wanted to have sex. That's not really how consent works. Um, and, yeah, another example would be Um, someone who's assuming that because you have had sex with that person before, then you want to have sex again, right? So I just want to emphasize that non-consensual sex can also happen... um, And actually, I shouldn't say non-consensual sex, I should just say rape at this point, but it can also happen um, within a relationship, right? It's not because you used to have sex with someone that they can expect that you want to have sex with them all the time, or at any time. Um, And finally, something that's very subtle, but also qualify as essentially rape, is someone removing a condom during sex um, when you only have agreed to have protected sex with that person. That's also not consensual. Exactly. Um, And I think the last point is specifically important because these things tend to happen to a lot more people than you think. And at that point, you are raping someone. Um, Right. Moving on to the next kind of taboo. And what's missing from this discourse is sex as a weapon, or also known as revenge porn. 
And again, I'm going to give you a little definition here. Revenge porn is the sharing of private sexual materials, either photos or videos, of another person without their consent and with the purpose of causing embarrassment or distress. The offences apply both online and offline and to images which are shared electronically or in a more traditional way, so it includes the uploading of images on the internet, sharing by text and email, or showing someone a physical or, le or electronic image. And that is legislation in Wales in England, and those found guilty of it can be sentenced to up to two years in prison and a fine. And in England, actually, just to put this into perspective, in 2017 to 2018, there were over 3,300 cases of revenge porn investigated, and the number of those is increasing annually. Mm. So, yeah, as a final note here, um, we want to say that if any of our listeners need help with this or further inf information on this, we encourage you to look at charities such as uh, Revenge Porn Helpline uh, in the UK. Uh, it also shows advice by Continent for Other Countries, by the way. Um, or also look into Women's Aid or the National Stalking Helpline or UK Safer Internet Centre. Those are good resources to look at if you feel like you've been a victim of revenge porn. Yeah, and these, there, there is free help and nobody will uh, charge you any fees or hidden fees for their help and their advice. So these are really useful um, points of contact. Um, to look at another aspect of actually sex ed <laughs> that we've mentioned, we focus on the very negative aspects of what's missing from sex ed at the moment. Um, but there's also positive stuff around and that is sexual empowerment. And that raises the questions really, are we doing sex wrong? So obviously there is sex for validation versus sex for personal satisfaction, right? And due to the previously mentioned expectations around gender roles in sex and uh, young people, you know, there's again a disclaimer, this is not necessarily based on scientific studies, but rather mainstream observation, will often seek sexual relationships for validation rather than because they genuinely feel a need or desire for it. And I think Seth is going to talk a bit about now performative sex versus pleasure-based sex that falls under this category. Yeah, exactly. So when you mention sex for validation, this genuinely would be like more on the per performative uh, side of things, right? And uh, so the sex therapist, Dr. Anna Randall, actually defines what performative-based sex is. So it's all types of sexual activities that are centered around some ideas, some fixed ideas. So for example, the idea that penetration is the main sexual act, right? That if you, you didn't really have sex unless you had like the very explicit act of uh, penetration or that sex has to end with ejaculation, for example, or um, that, yeah, there are like some rigid expectations of partners um, or, own, or of your own body. Um, yeah, or that sexual encounters may feel like you are following a script or routine, you know, like you're trying to replicate what, what you've seen in, in movies or on, in porn, uh, for example, as opposed to just being in the, in the moment. Um, or you might, you might, you may also start feeling anxious about not having an orgasm because, again, you see sex as mostly having to end with that 
big O. Yeah, um, the main goal inside, basically. Yeah, um, you may start to unconsciously even tolerate pain or discomfort because you thought that it's normal to feel a little pain. By the way, it's not. Like you shouldn't. Yeah, it shouldn't. Yeah, painful. it shouldn't be painful. Um, or you just don't clearly communicate um, because you know again in movies there are li- uh, rarely we've seen people communicate verbally like explicitly mm-hmm. during during sex or um, the or your attention during performative sex is very often uh, on your thoughts like what do I look uh, am I doing this right yeah. or yeah you're really like in your head as opposed to being in the moment mm-hmm. um, on the other hand, um, there is pleasure-based pleasure, pleasure ba- based sex, uh, and that can include many multiple activities, so it doesn't just like revolve around just that one, uh, one act. Um, and it includes that the agreement of uh, uh, that sex is decided in collaboration. Uh, it includes regular check- check-ins with uh, partners. Um, it also accepts that orgasm can be like a bonus or something optional and it's not central, it's not necessarily required in all sexual activities. Um, it may also include the use of all body parts and accessories, you know, it's like very versatile and uh, almost a spectrum. Um, and arousal is allowed to come before desire, that's also key. Um, it does not require or expect uh, anything or any person's body so it doesn't come with any like expectation of, of let's say uh, erection or you know any any like explicit exp- expectation it's just like open to whatever <laughs> happens um, and it always ends when any person wants it so no one is pushed into like going any longer that they want uh, and it may look very different uh, each time and for different people and it, it can also include um, regular pleasurable activities. It's like very um, open-minded and finally it focuses on physical sensations. Yeah, that, that's a really good exhaustive, exhaustive list there to kind of give you an idea of what sex can and can't look like. Now, what is actually sexual empowerment then? Well, as Seth already said, it can look really different for everyone. Um, but again, the core idea is that it's meant to be centered around your pleasure above anything else and it should engage in the sexual activity for my own pleasure first, right? Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to follow a specific rule book. It should be only guided by your own needs and desires at that given time. And it's also about understanding and respecting your own needs and desires, but also those about, you know, of your partner or partners for this matter. Mm-hmm. And finally, it also is about accepting the need that it might be very different every time you have sexual interaction or that it might be different to how it's being portrayed in the media or specifically in porn. Mm -hmm. And it's about recognizing that your pleasure is your own responsibility. Yeah. And to that, I'd like to add that um, in order to experience sexual empowerment, um, you need to start embracing curiosity around sex, right? So needs to start kind of thinking around um, outside the box, uh, breaking out of the taboos and social norms, uh, if that's what you want. Um, it also means learning what gives you pleasure. Um, 
it means like letting go of the shame and guilt about asking for what you want and also doing what you desire. Um, it's about embracing the fact that there are many other forms of sex that is not just penetrative sex. It's about also embracing masturbation as a healthy form of sexual expression um, because it has so many advantages, such as it's very low risk, right? You cannot transmit any STIs with masturbation. Uh, <laughs> it can teach you what brings you pleasure. Um, and yeah, and, uh, and especially for women, because there is a lack of teaching around female sexual pleasure, sexual empowerment means educating ourselves about the anatomy of our sex organs, mm. right? So just like try to remember how old were you when you found out about the full anatomy of the clitoris, for example. Um, did you know that uh, there are more than 8,000 nerves ending in the tip of the clitoris alone? I mean, it's like double the number that goes in a, in a penis. Just, yeah. Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so, and it's, it's just about learning that there are so many things that can give you pleasure and accepting that you deserve to indulge in, in, those, in those things, if you want. Yeah, and this really brings us um, to the next take, of our, or next part of our um, episode, and this is our personal take, and I think we kind of mentioned this before, or at least for me that's very true, sex wasn't discussed in this way in sex ed in Germany at least 10, 15 years ago, whenever I was in sex ed. And then again, also in my female friendship group, that's something that came far later on. Um, it wasn't an open and honest conversation from the get-go. I don't know about you, Seth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, kind of similar experience. It's definitely not mandatory. Um, it was not mandatory. And also it wasn't very comprehensive. And yeah, just like the things I mentioned earlier about the anatomy of, the, of female genitalia, just like there's still a lot that I learned in as, a, as an adult, you know, like like way later I think in life than necessary um, so yeah I guess that's kind of why we wanted to bring up this topic and have a whole episode around it it's because mm -hmm. there is a general lack of open discussions yeah. around the topic oh for sure and the, as we said taboos and stigma that's attached to it it makes it harder yeah. <laughs> for people to have those conversations yeah um, so now would you like to give us some um some ideas on what we could do to make a difference yes so there are a couple of things and um, in some ways they kind of repeat bits of what we've just discussed but you know identify your own current limitations and your preconceived ideas around sex you know do you carry any guilt or shame are you judgmental of other sexuality all these kind of things um, are great questions, just even if you ask them yourselves. It doesn't have to be as part of a group discussion with your friends, for example. And then next is widen the conversation about around sexuality, if and when you feel comfortable. Even, again, if it just means you do your own research on a topic. And then um, the next one would be try normalizing sex, sexuality and just embracing that this is part of life. And do this in a way that's patient and kind with yourself and not force anything. Mm -hmm. um, Seth, do you want to do the shout outs for this week's uh, episode? Yeah. So, okay, as per usual, we have read, listen and watch recommendations. So we are recommending two books this week. Um, the first one is Pleasure Activism, The Politics of Feeling Good, Emergent Strategy. Um, it's uh, written and gathered by Adriani Marie Brown. Uh, and then specifically for black listeners, I would recommend the, uh, actually it's a website, afrosexology.com. 
Uh, it's a great online resource centering black sexual liberation and healing. Um, and then we also have a recommendation specifically targeted to uh, queer people. So there, it's called Queer Sex, a Trans and Non-Binary Guide to Intimacy, Pleasure and Relationships. And it's by uh, Juno Roche. Our listened recommendation is Undressing Disability Podcast um, by Enhance UK, the charity Annika was mentioning earlier. And then we do recommend you watch uh, the YouTube video by Dr. Anne Olivarius, uh, and it's called Revenge Porn, The Naked Truth. Thank you so much for listening to us uh, today, and we look forward to our next episode. Yeah. Thanks for listening! And don't forget, this is your problem too.